bring out the holy hand grenade. That was the order. Yeah. That was the order that King Arthur gave to Brother Maynard in a last-ditch attempt to destroy the killer rabbit of Kerbenog, the one with the pointy teeth. You don't know what I'm talking about. You haven't seen the best movie of all time, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, maybe it's not the best movie of all time. Uh, The holy hand grenade is a way also to describe, I've used this as a description, and I'm sure others have, of describing that thing that people do from time to time when they're in a disagreement with one another, maybe over something theological or maybe something personal in their life, and they're going back and forth and trying to figure out who's right, and then one of them pulls out the holy hand grenade and says, well, God told me, right? Bam. I mean, then where does the conversation go after that? It's over, right? It's like, by the way, if you ever pull out the holy hand grenade and claim that God told you something, you better be right, right? Because it's a, it's a big thing. You want to be careful where you roll that out. But essentially, that is what happened at a pivotal moment in the history of the early church. The leaders of the Christian movement at the time had said, Here's what God told us, and they had a council. Here's what God told us in this council, and we've arrived at this conclusion, and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, the holy hand grenade. God told us. So here's the story. I'm just going to tell to you in brief, and then we're going to look at it in depth in just a moment. There was this disagreement, I think, one of the most poignant most crucial, dangerous disagreements in the history of our faith between two groups of followers of Jesus in the city of Antioch, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It led to a gathering, this disagreement. They decided they needed to get together and figure this out, so they held a council in the city of Jerusalem between the two disagreeing parties, and they met with the big kahunas of the church at the time, Peter, James, And the others and Paul and Barnabas were there as well. It's a big deal. The council met in Jerusalem. They heard evidence. They debated. And then they decided to send a letter after they discussed this back to the the city of Antioch with their verdict on the disagreement. Uh, Let's read the verdict. Grab a Bible, would you, and turn to Acts chapter 15, verse 23. It's page 920. The Bible's uh, in this room. I hope you have a Bible at home because, and get it and get it on your lap because otherwise you won't know if I'm not making this stuff up, right? So you need to hold me accountable here to what I'm saying. From Acts chapter 15, verse 23. Now what I'm going to show you is the letter after the verdict that they sent to the city of Antioch to explain their decision Uh, And there's a couple of interesting, confusing statements they make, which I will explain a little bit later, so hang on if it doesn't make sense. Verse 23, this is the letter they, they, that would be uh, Judas and Silas and Paul and Barnabas, took back with them to Antioch. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. 
Now, we understand that some men from here, from Jerusalem, have troubled you and upset you with their teaching. But we want you to know we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're sending along Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, there's the holy hand grenade, to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. Number one, you must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. That was the end of the letter. And there's that key phrase, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, I wonder how that happened. How did they know that the Holy Spirit was down with their decision? Did they hear something? Have you ever been in a situation where you really sensed God is speaking to me here? Did you hear verbally or did you, was there really odd circumstances that led you to believe, hey, something's going on here. God must be in this. Or was it internal? And did they all look at each other and say, did you feel that? Did you feel that? Do you sense that? Is that what they mean, that it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit? Well, whatever occurred, we'll, we don't know. They knew they had the, high, the, the Holy Spirit's seal of approval on their decision. Now, I've got two questions about this moment. One of them I'm just going to touch on, and the other I'm going to spend the rest of our time dealing with. And question number one is, is this in general, a legit way to make a decision. In other words, getting two groups of people together that may have a disagreement and then listening to one another and then ultimately listening for God to speak in the middle of it, making a decision and then expressing the decision. Is this process legit? Well, of course it is. That's what they used here and it's what we have done in leadership here for the last 30 years And uh, I was in the room where it happened uh, for the last 30 years. Essentially, it it goes like this. We gather together, even with a controversial topic, and what we do is we open our palms, sometimes physically, as we pray to enter into a meeting, and we uh, essentially take a posture of indifference, meaning I am not, I'm indifferent to my own opinion. I want to hear what we're going to come to together. We take a posture of humility, and then a posture of listening to one another. And in time, and by the way, this takes a long time, it's much easier if, it would have been much easier for the last 30 years if I just made all the decisions. That would have been much easier, right? Maybe I'd be a happier person, I don't know. Actually, I'd be miserable because the process is a great one where we humbly listen to one another, listen, and yes, somewhere along the way, we look at each other and go, It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And I know Barry and the lead team and the elders here, the governing board, still use that same process. So yes, it's a legit way to make a decision. But the second question is one that I would like to spend the rest of our time dealing with. And it's this. What was so important about this disagreement that led to the council in the first place where they had to go through this process and listen for God's voice showing up in their deliberations. Why did Luke decide 
to write to tell us the story of the council why did he include this in his account of the early church so that's the question I want to address I want to back up to Acts chapter 15 verse 1 so if you still have your Bibles open go back to I think it's page 219 in the in the Bibles here and let's let's see actually what transpired and let me set it up by telling you some of the world behind the text and the world of the text so what you're going to hear is a story that happened roughly 10 or 10 to 15 years after the events that Barry told us about last week about the conversion of Saul Uh, so in the intervening time in the 10 to 15 years since Saul's conversion he actually relocated his base of operations to this town of Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, it became such an important home base that these people were enamored with what he was doing. They supported him, they prayed for him, and they sent him out on his very first missionary journey. And he and Barnabas went to the island of Cyprus, you know, west across the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus, and there they 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 explained Jesus to the people of that island and then they moved north into across the ocean again to southern Turkey and went from town to town expressing the gospel of Jesus Christ and then they ended up back in Antioch that was in this period also in this period in a bigger sense what was happening back at sort of Christianity's home base in Jerusalem uh, the people in that area, there, there was a growing sense of Jewish nationalism and a lot of it had to do with being under the thumb of the Gentile nation of Rome and they were not, they didn't want to put up with it anymore and there were people that were trying to fight back against the, the Romans and actually it got really bad that about 10 years later this Jewish nationalism led to them taking up arms against Rome and of course they were crushed like bugs by Rome So we got to A.D. 70, which is, I don't know, somewhere 20 years after these events, and Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was knocked all the way to the ground. And Judaism, as an entity, even though their hyper-commitment to Judaism, the temple, the centerpiece of Judaism was destroyed, and it was the last time to this day that was ever an animal sacrifice given. And all of Judaism moved into the synagogue system, meeting places around the world so there was this Jewish nationalism growing Um, this is now my opinion I believe that this sense of pride and commitment to the law of Moses and to Judaism as a as a nation had found its way into some of the believers in Jesus Christ so much so that some followers of Jesus who were Jewish, of course, because all the early believers until the Gentiles became Christians, they were all uh, Jewish, but some of them were Pharisees, the leading ruling class, and some of them decided, wait a minute, we cannot lose Judaism. We want to hang on to loving Jesus and following Jesus, but I think we need to impose on us, we also need to follow the law. So it's to be Jesus and the law, So while this is all going on and you could see a rift was about to break out and it did in Antioch because some of these, uh, some people call them the Judaizers, some some of them actually heard about what was happening in Antioch. They traveled all that way, I don't know how many days journey that is, traveled up to Antioch where they 
Well, let's see what happened. Chapter 15, verse 1. I'll just read it to you. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Here's what they taught them. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Hmm. And Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. And, and by the way, the original language, the Greek there, arguing vehemently is just, that doesn't even capture it. It was a full-on throwdown with yelling, and it was, it was chaos. And it was because these people had come from Jerusalem and were saying, uh, look, we're glad that you're following Jesus. We're all following Jesus. That's all good. But you also need to get circumcised. Now, circumcision was the ultimate mark of Jewishness. It's the way a person symbolically would sign their covenant with God and become a Jewish person. And these men insisted, insisted that that's what these new Gentile believers needed to do. And Paul and Barnabas essentially were saying, you're out of your minds. No way is following the law at any point a requirement for salvation. I want to tell you how perilous this moment was. Let's think about what if they had not been able to come to a conclusion. From that point on, Christianity would have become two sects. Gentile Christians who did not obey the law and Jewish Christians who did obey the law. I'm telling you, had they not worked this through, human history would have been changed. That's, of course, our faith, but all of human history would be different. So that's why Luke included this, because they knew in, he knew intuitively how important this was. So they knew that they weren't going to, they were getting real close to a cleavage in Christianity, a real close to a split. Instead, they packed up everybody and they went back to Jerusalem to ba- basically seek out the advice of arguably the still worldwide leaders of Judaism, Peter and, and, and James and all those guys. And Paul and Barnabas were still in the process of developing their authority. So they all, well, let's see what happened. Chapter 15, verse 3. The church, sent, the church in Antioch sent the delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. Verse 4. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. Apostles were actually the guys that walked with Jesus, and elders were the leaders of the church subsequently, including James, uh, who was the pastor of the church and an elder, and James was the brother of Jesus, but he was highly regarded, and he was kind of the leader of the, the church in Jerusalem. Anyway, so they were welcomed by the whole church. And then Paul and Barnabas reported everything God had done through them Verse 5, then it was on, because then some of the believers, I can imagine them standing up going, this is very nice, Paul and Barnabas, so glad to hear that I did, I'm reading between the ones. I'm sure they were like, oh, this, thank you, thank you so much, now let's get to the point. The point is, Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses, period. We're not budging on this. And oh, it was on. 
Verse 7. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as, as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. All right, let's stop there and ask, what was he talking about? Friends, you all know that there was this moment where I was chosen to speak to Gentiles about Jesus. Now, what he was, what he was talking about, and Luke assumes that, that his readers would understand or remember the story that is recorded in Acts chapter 10. He had already told this story. Where Peter was on in the roof, I can't remember which house was his house or somebody's house. He was on the roof of the house. It was getting near dinner time and it said he was hungry. And then a weird, odd thing happened to him. He goes into, the scripture says, he goes, Peter went into a trance. And what he sees is a blanket, fabric of some kind being lowered out of the sky. And on the blanket are fish and crustaceans and animals. And God says, go ahead and eat. You're hungry. Peter's like, no way, because every one of the animals on the sheet were, were in the law, stuff that the Jews were not allowed to touch. You can't eat these things. And this trance, which had to have been freaky, happens three times. I don't know whether he wakes up and then he goes into the trance again and wakes up, goes into the trance, but it happens three times. And I can imagine every time he's pushing back saying, this is just bizarre. No, no, no. But then God says this. Peter, don't call unclean what I now call clean. Now he wasn't, this was a symbolic act by God. Don't call unclean what I am now calling clean. It was a metaphor. It was a symbol for what was about to happen the next day. Peter wakes up the next day and there's a knock on the door. There are several men there and they say, we have come to, uh, to you on behalf of a guy named Cornelius, Gentile, Roman centurion, who he himself in the days preceding this had received word from God that, they, he, that what he needed was to contact a guy named Peter. So these things are happening behind the scenes. They, they go to Peter's house and what's going on in his mind is don't call unclean what I now call clean. Don't call unclean what I now call clean. So Peter goes to Cornelius' house. He finds a man, a Gentile, who is wide open to hearing about Jesus Christ. Peter tells him about Jesus. Everybody gets saved. The Holy Spirit enters into the household and the first Gentile in history follows Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's talking about here. He says, you all know the story. It's infamous. It's famous about what happened to me. Now, there's an interesting, what he says next, starting in verse 8, is the simplest, purest theology behind God saying, don't call unclean what I now call clean. We'll get to that in a second. But I want to tell you there's another significant thing happening here. This is the last time 
in the narrative of the Bible, in the storyline of the Bible, that Peter shows up. He disappears after this. We don't hear from... Now, there are... He has some letters that he writes that we have recorded uh, from Peter to Christians. But this is the last time in the narrative that Peter shows up. And so Luke is using that as a, as a grammatical or a literary tool to remind us how important this moment is. Peter's laying down. He is dropping the mic right now about this crucial disagreement. And let's look more deeply at what he says in verse 8. He said, here's what lies behind what I'm saying. God knows people, this is verse 8, God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed to me that he accepts Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us who are Jewish. He made no distinction, key phrase, he made no distinction between us and them for he cleansed their hearts through faith So why are you now challenging God by burdening these Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were ever able to bear ourselves? Woo! We believe that we're all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. That's a game-changing statement there, especially verse 9 God made no distinction between us and them or the way I'm going to say it. There is no longer any us and them. There is no longer. There is no distinction. And the Greek word distinction could be interpreted as we're no longer separate Gentiles and pagans. We're not separate. We're, we're no lo- we can no longer discriminate against them. We can no longer withdraw from each other. We can, we can no longer fight against them. I can't overstate how revolutionary this was. Gentiles, by this time in the first century, were considered really unclean for two major reasons. Number one, Gentiles would touch things that Jews weren't allowed to touch based on the law. And they ate things that Jews were not allowed to eat based on the law. And the, the inference is, if, they've touched, if they're unclean because of what they've touched and what they ate, then don't go near them because it will rub off on you and you will be unclean. And so Gentiles were considered unclean. And not, not only that, I mean... It was the Gentile world that was setting out to destroy Judaism. It was the Roman Empire. It was this this pack of Gentiles that were trying to wipe out their way of life. And then you had the Greek Gentiles with their crazy gods that they worshipped and their, their idolatry that were trying to wipe out the way Jews would think. I mean, Gentiles were the enemy. In addition to that, there was this vibe that they got from Gentiles that Jews felt the Gentiles were uncouth and savage. Here's an illustration. So Paul, a, a number of years later, right, he pens a letter to the city of, uh, of Colossae, to a church in the city. Of, it's in the book Colossians. Chapter 3, verse 11, he says this. And I, he says essentially the same thing which comes out of this council. He says, there's no longer any, there's no any longer Jew and Gentile, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. What he's saying is there's no longer any distinction, but it's these two words that I found interesting, barbarian and Scythian. The word barbarian 
essentially means uncouth. These are Neanderthals. These are, that's what Jews thought of Gentiles. And then the second word, Scythians, were describing a certain kind of people that were, I mean, they were pot smokers. Maybe not the weed, but they would take hemp seeds and they would burn it and they would have parties and there would be Doritos and they would, <laughs> that's what the Scythians did. And then they would, they would drink wine that was laced with the blood of their adversaries and they would take scalps and they, they were nasty piece of business were the Scythians. And, and, and Peter is saying, it, it, uh, essentially, there's no longer any distinction. If they're followers of Jesus, there's no distinction anymore. We are now one. If, if any Gentile has surrendered their life to Christ and follow him, they're one of us. There's no longer any us or them. Now, here's what I want to point out in verse 8. Here's why this is the case, Peter says. This is the simplest, purest description of the radical inclusiveness of Christianity. He's essentially saying, here's how God has removed any hint of discrimination. Number one, he says in verse eight, God knows Gentiles' hearts. He does not overlook their sin. He knows their hearts. Number two, verse nine, he says, and he cleanses people internally, even the monstrous and the barbaric. He cleanses them. He knows their hearts. And in verse 8, and on top of all that, he gives them the Holy Spirit to live in them. Here's my summary of this little theological nugget. He says, Gentiles are not like us. Granted, I give you that. They're not like us. They don't think the way we do. They don't act the way we do. Uh, they're way out of our comfort zone. I'm with you on that. But stop making them jump through moral and religious hoops to be accepted into our community. Stop with that. No more moral hoops, no, uh, hoops, no more legal, no more law to accept. No, they don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Are you... I'm hoping you're picking up how important this was. How huge a moment this is. I mean, I think it's like in the top three moments post-resurrection of Jesus in our whole faith. I mean, if number one is the sending of the Holy Spirit, number two is the conversion of Saul, this has to be the third most important thing that happened. Now, they could have called the question at that moment because Peter's dropped the mic and he's given them an incredible theological reason for his, what, what he's saying. But they turn to Paul and Barnabas, and I, we won't read this, but essentially Paul and Barnabas, somebody turns to Paul and says, hey, tell us some stories about how Gentiles are coming to faith. And so Paul and Barnabas say, well, this happened on, in Cyprus, and this happened, the, it, these Gentiles, here's the story, here's the story. And I mean, you could tell the consensus is building. So we get to the point where James probably was designed to have the last word. Maybe he's chairing the council as the pastor of the, of the church in Jerusalem. He offers a summary of what the discussion was about and then makes the suggestion for this letter. They make the decision with the agreement of the Holy Spirit. They pull the pin on the holy hand grenade and send the letter and there was much rejoicing. 
and the history of Christianity and the entire human race was radically altered at that moment. Now, before we wrap this up, what about these three rules? Like, it seems contradictory. Like, don't give them any laws they have, but these three. Well, what are, what are these? I mean, there were, there were three, here's the three requirements they gave them. Uh, number one is abstain from eating food offered to idols. Don't eat, don't eat food that was offered to idols of any kind. Number two, don't eat uh, animals uh, that still have the blood in them. Uh, and number three, abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, so immorality. Here's what I think was going on. These were not laws. These were requirements that said, all right, there is no longer us and them, and that means from time to time, and maybe a lot, we are going to sit down and eat meals together because that's what fellowship is about. And all we're asking you as Gentiles is understand where we're coming from and eat something other than an um, animal that was sacrificed to an idol or an animal that still has blood. There's plenty of other food in the world. You don't have to eat those things. Please don't do that. And that way, we can ensure that we all can sit down and have a meal together. And number two, we all know that sexual immorality is not good. So let's just avoid that. Let's just let's not engage in that. And as a result, we can be now together in community. Do you understand what these requirements were? These were like requirements for community to work. There is no longer any us and them. So let me tease that out a bit. God saves every human being who follows Christ through his undeserved grace. So let's make sure our welcome and inclusion is as graceful as his to the people in our world. Friends, God knows hearts. He doesn't need you to confront and expose people. Because he knows their hearts. He cleanses people internally. We don't need to impose rituals or values that clean people up. And he gives the Holy Spirit to people, the great equalizer. They don't need anything else. So let's make sure our welcome and inclusion is as graceful as God's. It was clear to me growing up in my early years that radical inclusion was not acceptable in my church. I've told this story several times, and it, as I was processing it this week, it troubled me that as a child, it's the one thing I remember the preacher that I grew up under saying, I mean, of all the sermons that I heard him give, and I heard every sermon he gave because I was there every time the church door was open, right? But I remember this one thing, and it breaks my heart that I remember this one thing. I wish I didn't remember. I see him, I could, I, if, I, if you and I would go back to that church right now, and I would walk in, I would walk, I would walk you right to the pew I was sitting in and I could look up at where he was standing and he was a little bit overweight 
uh, had a kind of a round guy. He had uh, a black suit on, and I'm just picturing what I'm, kind of wispy hair, kind of comb overish, and white shirt and a thin black tie, and he's leaning on the pulpit. Pulpit was huge, of course. It was like this wide and had a Bible on it that you needed a forklift to move, all right? So that's, that's the church I was in. You know that church? You've, you've been in that? You've been in You know what I'm talking about? It's like, here's how you turn the pages of that. Um, but I, this is what I picture. I, he had like his arm like this. I'm sitting over there looking up. He's leaning over like, like the end of a Little Richard concert. And, uh, you know, like somebody come put a cape on me. Uh, I'm done, you know. Uh, look that up on online. But um, he, would, when, he didn't know who Little Richard was. But uh, at any rate, he's leaning over the pulpit. And he looks up and he goes, I don't even remember the, con- I don't remember the context of this. I wish I knew what he was preaching about. But he goes... If any of those long-haired hippies would come into this church, I would grab them by the hair and throw them down the front stairs myself. That's what I remember. So I knew that inclusion was not acceptable. And this week, as I was processing it, much to my dismay... I remembered more about my experience in that church of several hundred, maybe three or four hundred people that I can only remember. I actually sat this week and tried to figure out, do I remember any person of color in that church? Maybe one. I, can, I see one man in my mind. Of course, I was young at the time. I don't remember any family in that church being anything other than solidly middle class or upper middle class. And I only have a vague memory of one adult with disabilities worshiping with us. Inclusion? There was no inclusion. And that's what I was taught. I'm glad they taught me about the Bible. I'm glad that Mrs. Truby taught me Uh, about all the stories, and I'm glad Mrs. Pethrick gave me the opportunity to sing in public, which really reoriented my life. Um, But one thing they didn't teach me, among other things, was how to be welcoming and as graceful as God toward people. Let's get personal here. With whom are you not very welcoming? into your life or our faith? Who won't you welcome in? Who are those people whom you can't imagine including in your life or our faith? Finish this sentence. I'll welcome and include those people if they... Speak my language. Share my politics. Clean up their act. Don't make me feel uncomfortable. Friends, this issue is very much worthy of the holy hand grenade. It's worthy of God speaking into our lives. 
God made that very clear through the Jerusalem Council. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That transcends it today. So my friends, let's make sure that our welcome and inclusion is as graceful as God's. Now we have a beautiful opportunity to think through this more deeply as we share communion together. The word communion, which is the kind of the common way we describe this moment, of course we think of it in theological terms as if we are, we are reminded uh, of our communion with God through Jesus Christ as we take the, the bread and the cup. But I want you today also to think of it in terms of the communion we share with people like us around the world who follow Jesus Christ, even those people, those people who, who follow Jesus, but they're not like you and their lifestyle is not one you agree with and it's not one that you like and it's the, the people you don't want to be around. Keep in mind, just picture those people holding the same bread and the same cup in their hand as we share communion together. Let's pray. We have much to learn from you, Father, about how graceful you are, how merciful you are, As we take this bread and this cup, the great unifier, reminding us of the spirit that lives within us and the sacrifice of Jesus, which set it all in motion. May we also think about the people around us, not just in this church, but the people around the world who share the bread and the cup with us. Bless our communion, I pray. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us/hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.